Good morning, church. <clears throat> so good to see you. Well, today we're going to continue our sermon series, When Jesus Comes to Church. And our text today will be Revelations 3, verses 7 to 13, and we're going to visit Philadelphia. It's been our custom here to, to light these candles uh, to represent the seven churches of Revelation. We started out with Ephesus. They had good works, good teaching, but they had a problem. They had left their first love. And we went to Smyrna, a suffering church, a poor and persecuted church. Smyrna was one of the only two churches in which Christ had no correction for them. And it's somewhat surprising that he did not promise to rescue them out of their trouble, but actually he encouraged them to endure it and that they would have even tougher times ahead of them. We looked at Pergamum. They were faithful under persecution, but they weren't. They didn't keep the faith pure. Their problem was that they were allowing some false teaching. And Pastor Mike talked to us about Thyatira, the church that caved into culture and lost their Christian distinction. And things went from bad to worse. Pastor Paul talked to us about Sardis, and that was a dead and dying church. Today, <clears throat> we look at Philadelphia. So let me start with giving you some background about Philadelphia. It was founded in the year 189 BC by Eumenes, and he was the king of Pergamum, and he had a younger brother named Attalus. Attalus was a very popular man. He was a great leader. He had won some wars. He was like a diplomat to Rome. And so they really liked Attalus, and they, they weren't sure about his brother Eumenes. And so they said to Atlas, we will help you overthrow him. You could be the king of Pergamum. But Atlas refused to take part of that. And when Eumenes found out about his brother's loyalty, he called him Atlas Philadelphus, which meant Atlas, the one who loves his brother. And so when he founded this new city, he named it Philadelphia in honor of the brotherly love that had saved his kingdom. Philadelphia sat in a valley region about 30 miles from Sardis. It was located on a major roadway where three different regions intersected. It was known as the gateway to the east. Philadelphia was built with a specific purpose in mind. It was intended to spread the Greek language, the Greek way of life, the Greek culture throughout the regions and beyond. And that plan worked. Because by the year 19 AD, about 200 years after its founding, the original inhabitants no longer spoke their own language. And for all intents and purposes, they had fully absorbed into the Greek way of life. Philadelphia was the Napa Valley of its day. It was famous for its vineyards and wine production. So it's not surprising that the city was the center of worship for the Greek god Dionysus, the god of wine ecstasy and fertility. You can imagine what went on at her temple. The city also had a temple to Zeus and to the Greek goddess of fire, Hesta. And we presume that they had temples for all 12 of the Olympian gods because they were known across the region as little Athens. The city even had a temple to the emperor of Rome. And engraved on that temple was one of the titles that he had given himself the son 
of the Holy One. Philadelphia was tolerant of many gods. They expected the citizens to comply with Greek culture, and that meant worshiping these gods. To refuse to worship the gods and the emperor was seen as unpatriotic and possibly upsetting to the gods who may choose to put misfortune on the city because the city had neglected to worship them. And so worshiping these gods was, in their mind, a necessary thing to do for the whole community to enjoy peace and prosperity. Now, in the Roman Empire, Judaism was exempt from that. They were a protected religion because it was such an ancient religion. But Christianity was relatively new. It was not protected. So the Jews were exempt from this requirement to worship the gods, but everyone else in the city was expected to do that. So the Jews had a well-established synagogue, and a synagogue that Jesus comments on in his message. So let's look at that message in Revelation 3, 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Before we dig into this text and go through it by verse by verse, I just want to share a few like overarching observations. As I mentioned earlier, Philadelphia and Smyrna are one of only two churches out of seven that receive no rebuke, no call to repent, no word of correction, no threat of Christ coming against them because they had compromised doctrine or they had corrupt behavior or they were caving in to culture. They only received compliments and commendation, encouragement and affirmation. And I think that's pretty significant. Jesus threatened to remove some of those unhealthy churches, to come against them, to spit them out of his mouth. But here we find a church that pleased the Lord, that honored the Lord, that stayed true to its mission. This church was a keeper. What was true for the Church of Philadelphia, we want to be true for Gladwell Community Church. Second observation, this is the only letter that did not borrow its description of Jesus from John's vision described in chapter 1. All the other six letters pulled pieces of that vision in chapter 1 but not here. Instead, it pulls all of its descriptions from the book of Isaiah. 
The assumption is that this church in Philadelphia must have been very familiar with the words of Isaiah. And that would lead us to believe that many of them were of a Jewish background. I think it's safe to think that many of the Christians in Philadelphia had once been active worshipers and members of the local synagogue. Once they discovered Christ to be their Lord and Savior, they would have been seen as traitors to the faith and people who spread heresy. So there was considerable tension and hostility between the synagogue and the church. And into that environment, Jesus speaks. In verse 7, he begins by identifying himself in ways that clearly affirm his deity and his authority. We'll look at slide uh, verse 7. The identity of Jesus. He is the one and only. He is the Holy One. As soon as he said that, the words of the Holy One, he's using a term that immediately identified himself as God. In the book of Isaiah, God was referred to as the Holy One of Israel 25 times, and now Jesus is claiming that for himself. The disciples understood that Jesus was the Holy One. In John 6, 69, Peter said, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They spent a lot of time with him. They came to know that he was the Holy One. They recognized something about him that went way beyond just another nice guy. They came to understand that he was the Holy One of God. So what does it mean to be holy? Holiness refers to the quality of being infinitely separated from all that is contrary to God's standard. I'll just say that again. Holiness is the quality of being infinitely separated from all that is contrary to God's standard. The idea of holiness always has the idea of being set apart, sacred, pure, wholesome, to be wholly trustworthy. Many may aspire to be holy, and some people may claim to be holy, like the Roman emperor who gave himself that title, the son of the Holy One. But any quick review of the emperor's life quickly shows that far from being holy, he was wholly corrupt and defiled through and through. But Jesus isn't like that. He is, in fact, the Holy One. He's pure. He has no evil within him. He's not stained with selfishness or wild ambition. He, his nature is free from sin. He never abuses his power. He is the word made flesh, and he is worth following. So not only is Jesus the Holy One, but Jesus is the true one. Now, there's two Greek words for true, and we only have the word true. One word means true rather than false, and the other one means true rather than fake. And that's the one used in this text, the Greek word alethanos. And it means real, genuine, authentic. Jesus is saying, I am the real day, the real deal. I'm not pretending to be God. I'm not an imposter. I am alethanos, authentic, the real deal. And Jesus not only claimed to tell the truth, he actually claimed to be the truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
And no man cometh to the Father except through me. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he love, live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never truly die. Those are amazing statements for someone to make. They're bold statements. They're big statements. And so we have to reckon within ourselves. Are they true or are they false? C.S. Lewis pointed out that someone who would say such things is either speaking the truth, which means they are, in fact, the Lord, or they're delusional, which would make them a lunatic, or they know very well that they're deceiving people, which would make them a liar. And so we need to decide. Was Jesus a con man? Was he just plain crazy? Or was he Christ, the Savior of the world? I can assure you that on the testimony of the Gospels and the changed lives of millions of people who've come to know Christ and follow him, he is exactly who he said he is. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's real, and he's ready to receive anyone who would come to him in faith. In this letter to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus said, he's the Holy One, he's the True One, and now we're going to see that he is the only one that has the key of David. Jesus said he had the key of David, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. These words come straight out of Isaiah chapter 22. Now, in that chapter, God gave Isaiah a prophecy that dealt with two men. One was named Shebna, and the other was named Eliakim. Now, Shebna was the keeper of the keys in King Hezekiah's kingdom. That was an important, high-level role. Because the one who had the key has access to all the resources of the palace and the kingdom, and he can either grant or deny anyone else access. Now, in that day, the person entrusted with the key was like the chief of staff or a prime minister. It was a position of great authority to grant access. And Shebna became very proud of himself and he sought to promote and glorify himself, which offended the Lord, and the Lord cast him out. Because of his arrogance, God told Shebna that he was going to be replaced by someone else. It will be helpful for us just to look at that text, since Jesus referred so clearly to it. Isaiah 22, verses 20 to 22. He said, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. I think you can see that this phrase that uses Jesus used to describe himself came right out of this text. And again, this assumes that people would have been very familiar with Isaiah and understand the significance of what it meant to say, I have the key of David. Isaiah 9-6 is well known to, to us. You see it on Christmas cards. And it's a prophecy of Jesus the Messiah. 
It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now when it says the government will be on his shoulder, I think it was very likely referring to the key that would be put on someone's shoulder. Keys back then were much bigger than the keys we have today. They were anywhere from one to two feet long, and people carried them on their shoulder. You can see that in this image. Whoever saw this person would know that that was a person with authority, with power, with the ability to access the resources of the key. It's another image that shows how the key was put into a door through a hole in the door and then used to dislodge the locking pegs. And that would be the only way to open that door. In the upper corner, you can see the picture of the, the key with all the individual pegs. Without that key, you weren't going to get that door open. So what is Jesus saying by using this illustration from Isaiah? What do you think he wanted that church in Philadelphia to know? What do you think he would like us to know? I believe Jesus is saying that he alone has the key to the kingdom of God. He alone has authority. In Matthew 28, 18, after Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again from the dead, he appeared to his disciples, and he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He alone has authority and power over life and death. He alone conquered sin. He alone was buried for three days and rose up from the grave. He alone can open the door of eternity. And when he opens it, no one can shut it. But if he shuts it, no one can open it. What they needed to know back then and what we need to know now is that he is the Holy One. He is the True One. He alone has the key to God's kingdom. Now we'll look at verse 8. Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the little power church that kept the faith. You see that where he says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. He starts by saying, I know your works. I see what you've done to serve me and to share the gospel and to show my love to others. I know your accomplishments. And now I want to show you what I've done. I want you to see that I have opened a door for you which no one can shut. I'm going to talk more about that open door in a few minutes. But first, I want to talk about the church of little power. I take that to mean that they were not a strong political force. They were far from respected socially. They had no economic clout. They couldn't change anything by boycotting something they found offensive. They were looked at as a strange cult. They were not winning the cultural war of their day. So it's true. These ancient Philadelphians, they had little power. But what about us today? Are, is our situation all that different? As Christians in the capital district, one of the least Christian regions in the country, 
And with society just rapidly changing all around us, we may feel like people of little power. Remember what Paul said to the Christians in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, 27. He said, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things that the world considered foolish in order to shame those who think that they're so wise. He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. The great thing about this little power church is that whatever weakness they had, it didn't stop them from being faithful to God, and it doesn't need to stop you or me either. Jesus said, I know you have little power, but you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Again, whatever they lacked, it did not keep them from worshiping God, witnessing for God, working for God. I'm sure there was a lot that they couldn't accomplish. They had to live with a lot of things beyond their control. But there was that one thing they could do to keep God's word to honor his name. And isn't that what makes a church successful? Isn't that what keeps all of us as Christians on track? Isn't that what the other churches failed to do? Ephesus lost its love. Pergamon infected with false teaching. Thyatira compromised. They had sexual immorality. Sardis, spiritually dead and dying. And Laodicea, we'll hear about next week. They had some pretty severe problems. But today, we get to look at Philadelphia, a humble church that was committed to keeping the word of Christ and honoring that name. They were loyal, they were faithful, and they kept first things first. Donald Barnhouse, the famous theologian, commented that this church is to be commended for keeping the word of the Lord and not denying his name. Success in Christian work is not to be measured by any other standard. It is not a rise in ecclesiastical position. It is not the number of new buildings which have been built through a man's ministry. It's not the crowds that flock to hear a human voice. Now, all of these things are frequently used as the yardstick of success, but they're all earthly. They're not heavenly measurements. When Jesus said, I know you have but little power, he was acknowledging what that church already knew. He wasn't informing them. They had the poverty of spirit to realize how much they needed God's strength. Do you see yourself as a powerful person or a person of little power? Are you aware of your own weaknesses? It can be healthy if that humbles you and it makes you lean into the Lord even more. But don't dwell on what you think you lack. Dwell on what God says he can supply. In 2 Peter 1.3, we're told that by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life and that we've received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. There may well be a lot lacking in us, but there's nothing lacking in God or his ability to help us grow and follow him and live in victory. We may feel like little power Christians, but we can commit ourselves as individuals and as a church 
that we're always going to worship God in spirit and truth. We're always going to witness for God with words and actions. We're always going to work for God, gladly serving in his kingdom as he has gifted us and given us abilities and opportunities. No matter how small you may feel, no matter how weak you think you are, no matter how little power you have, there really is nothing that can stop you from worshiping and witnessing and working for God. Jesus enables us because he is the Holy One. He is the true one. He alone has the key to God's kingdom, and he has opened a door for us. Now we'll talk more about that open door. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So what is this door? One common interpretation is that this door refers to a unique evangelistic opportunity that God opened for them. And people often believe that because uh, how many times the Apostle Paul referred to evangelistic opportunities as an open door? In 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul said that God opened a wide door for the gospel in Ephesus. And in 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul said that God opened a door for the gospel in Troas. And in Colossians 4.3, Paul asked the church to pray that God would open a door for the outreach of the gospel. Now, remembering that Philadelphia was founded as, a, in a sense, a missionary city to spread Greek culture, some believe that Christ is now giving this church an open door to spread the gospel of Christ and the culture of his kingdom throughout the region. And if that was the main idea of that open door, then Jesus wanted them to see it, to understand it, to take advantage of it. He did not want them to miss it. So in the Greek, it's a very strong language when he says, Behold! Look at this. You don't want to miss this. Sometimes God sets an open door for evangelism right in front of us, and we don't see it. A man once came to Charles Spurgeon and asked, how can I win others to Christ? And Spurgeon said to him, well, what do you do? What's your job? And he said, well, I'm an engine driver for a train. And Spurgeon asked him, is the man who shovels coal on your train a Christian? I don't know, said the guy. And Spurgeon said, well, go back, find out, and start with him. Ask God to help you see the open door that might be right in front of you to serve him, to share his love, to share the good news of Christ. God has put each of us into a unique circle of friends and coworkers and classmates and neighbors. So I encourage you to look for that open door to witness for Christ whenever you're with people. It could be a conversation at the grocery store or getting your hair cut or seeing your doctor or dentist. You will be amazed to discover the doors that God will open to bring people to himself. So the open door could refer to that God-ordained opportunity to witness. That's the way Paul used it. But if we look not so much at what Paul wrote, but we stick to the words right inside this message that Jesus gave, there might be another way to look at this. And I don't think that one interpretation cancels out the other. I actually think they both enmesh and can can function together. The other way to look at this is that it means for the Philadelphia Christians that Jesus has opened wide the door to the kingdom of God. Now, the door to the synagogue was slammed shut to them 
but the door of God's kingdom was open, and there was no power on earth that could shut that door. See, when you connect the open door of verse 8 with the open door that Jesus referred to in verse 7, it's clear that Jesus is saying that I've opened that door because I have the key to God's kingdom. He alone can do that. He alone lived a sinless life. He alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He alone can make us right with God. He alone rose from the dead. He alone offers eternal life. No one has access to the Father except through Christ. Without Christ, the door is shut. Our good works are like filthy rags before him. We can't earn our way in. We can't force our way in. We don't have the key. We have to rely on the one who does have the key, the one who can open that door, the one who actually said, I am the door in John 10, 9. Jesus said, I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And what that means is that there's no other salvation outside of Christ. And I suspect that the Christians in Philadelphia were being told by the persecuting Jews that they, the Jews, they're the ones who had access to God. They had the keys to the kingdom. They had the rituals to remove the guilt of sin. They had the ability to make you right with God. They had the revelation of Moses, the law, the prophets. And so when it came to who's really connected to God, they were confident that they were in and that these Christians were out. But what they didn't understand was that Jesus had, in fact, opened the door of the kingdom to his church, and they were powerless to stop that. Now, the Jews who rejected Christ as the Messiah felt that it was really their duty to stamp out what they saw as a danger to their faith, and they persecuted the Christians without mercy. I'm sure we all remember how Paul at one time was consumed was seeing Christians either jailed or killed. And the local synagogue put tremendous pressure on these Philadelphia Christians to renounce their faith or at the very least stop preaching about Christ. And that leads us to verse 9. God can handle our enemies. He said, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Well, let me say this right up front. Jesus was not speaking about all Jewish people for all time. And we do not speak of Jewish people as belonging to the synagogue of Satan. Jesus spoke of this specific group in Philadelphia who persecuted the Christians while this was written. But I do think that we can see from this text that whenever Christians are targeted for persecution and death because they name the name of Christ, we can be sure that Satan is involved in instigating hatred against those who love Christ. So what Jesus meant by saying that they're not true Jews is that these folks were Jews by way of race and religion, but not by way of relationship with God. Paul said in Romans 2.28, that being a Jew was not a matter of having outward things done to you, ceremonies and rituals, but it was a matter of having your heart changed, an inner work 
and that being connected to God through Christ. So what I take away from verse 9 is that God can handle our enemies. He can turn things around in ways that we really can't imagine. In this text, he said that he's going to cause the Jews who are attacking the church to come and bow down and worship along with the Christians. He was not saying that they were going to worship the Christians. He's going to worship with them. They're going to be converted, and they will realize that those Christians were, in fact, loved by Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. So if people are causing you pain, if you see people as your enemies, don't try to get revenge in your own way. Turn them over to God. Jesus said that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us because God can turn things around. And in the meantime... He can use that situation to shape you and to refine you for his glory. And I will look at verse 10. This church is a keeper. And you see that word, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now this verse lends itself to several interpretations. To some, it is proof positive that Christians will be raptured before the great tribulation comes upon the earth. But others would say that might be reading a little too much into it. And there are scholarly articles that argue for the validity of both of those positions. And I will share my thoughts about that as well. But first, I want to use my time discussing what is more clear to me, which is this church was a keeper, a keeper of God's word. Jesus said, you kept my word about patient endurance. So clearly they had been or they still were suffering through some sort of trial or tribulation. Otherwise, they wouldn't be commended for enduring. What impresses me is that during that tough time, they kept the word. Now, the word keep or kept in the Greek is tereo. And it means to preserve, to watch over, to pay attention, to give heed to. Now, this church in Philadelphia, this, this church with little power, they kept, they watched over, they paid attention, they gave heed to God's word about suffering for Jesus' sake. I think they knew what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. And they kept that word. They endured mistreatment and justice and persecution because they aligned themselves with Christ. They didn't strike out at their enemies. They didn't cave in to make life easier. They stayed the course. They patiently endured. Now, the Greek phrase for patiently endured means courageous endurance or even cheerful endurance. Now, what an example for you and I to follow, to cheerfully endure hardship for the cause of Christ, to make sure that we pay attention to God's words, that we don't slowly drift away from his teaching, that we are keepers of the word. And then Jesus said, because you've kept my word, I'm going to keep you. And the question is, what does Jesus mean by this, that I will keep you from the hour of trial? Well, this is where the interpretive challenge comes in. It all comes down to, what's that mean? In the Greek, it's tereo 
ek, tereo keep, ek, from. Does that phrase keep you from? Does that mean you'll be removed, snatched away, rescued, raptured? Or does it have other meanings? Now, generally, when you get in a situation like this, you want to look at how that phrase was used somewhere else in the Bible, and you try to get insight from that. This is not a popular phrase. It is only used one other place in the entire Bible. The good thing is it was used by the same speaker, the Lord Jesus, and it was recorded by the same writer, John. And we find that phrase in John 17, 15, where Jesus prayed this for his disciples. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's the only other place tereo ek is used. Jesus seemed to be envisioning that God was going to be able to keep them from the evil one without removing them out of the world. He seemed to be saying that God would protect them, watch over them, pay attention to them, preserve them as they lived out their faith in the midst of a fallen and sinful world. And if that is the case, then what Jesus was saying to the church in Philadelphia and what he's saying to all of us is that because you've kept my word of enduring hardship for my sake, I'm going to keep you and protect you and watch over you and sustain you. And I believe that's the thing that Christ does when his people are in trouble or in tribulation. He sustains them. That's what he promised to do for the faithful in Philadelphia. Now, I realize that some may look at this differently or disagree with my perspective, and that's okay. I'm not dogmatic about it. I think that what we want to come away with is the idea that keeping God's word keeps us in God's will. And if we're in God's will, then we're right where we need to be. Consider Smyrna, another faithful church in which Christ had nothing to correct. They weren't rescued from prison or from death. And Jesus said, Satan's going to throw you in prison, and some of you will be put to death, but be faithful to the end. So it's just another thing to think about. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Hold on. It's worth the wait. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Jesus had not one word of correction for this church, but he did have this one command. Hold fast what you have. And what is it that they had? They had a pattern of perseverance, a track record of keeping his word and honoring his name no matter what. And Jesus is just saying to them, hey, finish strong. Keep the faith. Stay solid all the way through. He wanted them to keep that crown. Now, this is not a king's crown. This is a, a, like a garland wreath put on an athlete's head. It's a symbol of, of victory for finishing the race and staying through. The crown is not salvation. It's a reward. In Revelation twenty-two twelve, Jesus said, Look, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me, and I will give it to each person according to what they have done. In 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 13, Paul said that Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith and that we all share that foundation, but be careful how you build on that foundation. 
Some will build with gold, silver, precious stones, but others will build with wood, hay, and straw. And each work will become manifest because the day will disclose it. It's going to be revealed by fire, and that fire will test what sort of work each person has done. And if the work that anyone built on that survives, they receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as one who came through a wall of fire. So we see that rewards and salvation are, in fact, two distinct and different things. So when Jesus was saying to them, hold fast, he's saying, don't lose your rewards. Keep that crown. In every letter to the seven churches, Jesus always referred to the overcomer. He always made promises to them. Some translations say to he who is victorious, to he who overcomes, to he who conquers. But it's all the same word in the Greek. It's the word nikau, which means victory. You probably know this Greek word by another name. A very famous sneaker company uses it, Nike. Now, you don't need to own a pair of Nike sneakers if you don't want to. But you do want to be a Nike Christian, a victorious Christian, an overcoming Christian. You want to be growing in your faith, not stuck in a rut. Jesus wants us to press on and prevail in our faith. And to do that, we simply need to hold fast to Jesus, hold fast to his word, hold fast to the family of God on earth, to the local church. To those who find their victory in Jesus Christ, verse 12 says, To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now, when this was written, pillars were a very common sight. They were in every temple in town. Pillars were often the only thing left standing after an earthquake. And Jesus said, I'm going to make you a pillar. I think that's an indication that something transformative needs to take place if you and I are to be made a pillar. Because pillars do not come already shaped and sized to fit. They have to be made. They're cut to size, they're chiseled into shape, they're sanded smooth, they're rounded off, they're carved. A lot of work goes into it. And then when they're put in place, they don't move. They are permanent fixtures. And God is making pillars out of you and I. And where does that work take place? Right in our life right now. That's where the rough edges of our personality get chiseled off. That's where we get rubbed the wrong way. Could that be God working on us, preparing us, making us smooth, polishing us so that we reflect his character? Our ordinary daily life is what God uses to remove the things that are unfit for glory. Day by day, he carves out those things and he works into us the image of his son, And that can be a very painful work, but a very necessary one. To be a pillar in the temple of God, it's a promise of being in God's presence forever. And that's an amazing thing. And then this pillar receives the name of God and the name of New Jerusalem and a new name for Jesus. 
I don't know if you can see it in this picture, but the pillars often had nameplates on them. They had names written on them. They usually honored the priest who had served in that temple, or they gave honor to the person who helped pay for the temple to be built. I think this one on the screen, I can't read it, but I've been informed that it's telling you that this donor paid for 30 of the columns in this temple. So he wants everyone to know how great he is. As pillars in God's temple, there will be no self-exaltation. There will be no drawing attention to what we did for God, the way we served. There's no glory for ourselves. Instead, what will be carved on us is his name. The name of New Jerusalem, meaning we belong here. We're citizens of heaven. And this new name for Jesus, because right now we see darkly, but then we'll see face to face and we'll know him in a much fuller and deeper and richer way. And we'll know that new name as well. We will bear witness to him. I find it amazing that God can bring us from having little power to being a lasting pillar in his presence. And it doesn't get any better than that. And so I close with, chapter, with verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Will you uh, please pray with me? Lord, we want to hear what the Spirit says to us today through this message that you gave to your church in Philadelphia 2,000 years ago. And the world we live in is so different than their world. And yet, in some ways, it's the same. We know that human nature hasn't changed. We know that you haven't changed. And we know that being human, we still sin. And you, being God, you still save us. And God, we recognize that you've opened a door for us, that you've made a way for us to be part of your kingdom now and forever. And Lord, that's such good news that we want to tell others about you. So help us to see opportunities in our everyday life to share you with those that you bring into contact with us. God, we thank you that you've loved us. Now help us to love and pray for those that we feel are enemies. Give us your heart for people that are different from us, that disagree with us, that even have disdain for us. Let us entrust them to you, that you would have mercy, that you would cause them to come to know you, and that you will cause them to worship with us. Let us be a church like Philadelphia, keepers of your word, people who love one another as you have loved us, And let us keep positive and patient in the negative world, cheerfully enduring. And Lord, we need your strength to do that. Thank you for watching over us, sustaining us, and giving us what we need to make it through whatever trial we're in. One day, we will be pillars in your presence forever, and we will exalt you forever. And may that reality help us as we endure life on this earth. Keep us in your love your peace, and your joy as we keep you in our heart forever. In Christ's name, amen.